another edition of the It's Always Friday the 13th podcast. Today we are taking on Jason Takes Manhattan, also known as Part 8 in the series. And boy, it's a doozy. Gentlemen, uh, let's get right into it. I'm John Evans. I'm joined by Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek. How are you guys? Yo. Hanging in there, man. Yeah, Vic, do you, you want to do the, uh, the the summation this time, or I would like to try. I found much of this movie incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a lot of people on a boat, and uh, <laughs> uh, Jason is killing them. Uh, I believe that Crystal Lake morphs into a river somehow. <laughs> um, and uh, no, I so I can give you the 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 basic rundown is uh, we have. The, what's become the, the traditional Jason resurrection scene uh, in which uh, two high school graduates are on a houseboat and uh, their anchor drags some kind of electrical cable into Jason that reanimates him. And uh, he goes on board and starts killing people. Uh, we jump to what appears to be a, a completely random selection of other graduating uh, seniors who are being taken on some sort of celebratory cruise that's being hosted by two of the teachers. Um, guys, jump in if any of this, if you have a, a way to explain this that makes any more sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Afraid I, not. I, 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 I'm slightly baffled as, as to your confusion. I was 100% uh, glocking what was going on, man. <laughs> <laughs> you get bonus points for bringing Grok into the conversation, sir. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, you know you're a nerd when. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, Jason finds his way onto this new boat, which contains an aquaphobic girl, um, <laughs> because why not? And uh, her her uncle, uh, who also seems to be kind of a douchebag, who's also one of the teachers and uh, chaperones, her English teacher, who seems to be one of the nice people, and uh, Jason. And Jason proceeds to make his way through the kids, uh, ultimately sinking the boat, and they are forced to row uh, across what what plainly appears to be a soundstage uh, into <laughs> New York City, uh, and where Jason follows them. Somehow, it's not really explained how, and uh, they wander through the most uninhabited portion of <laughs> New York for most of the most of the scene. Uh, until uh, finally confronting him in the sewers, and I'm not even I'm not even going to touch the scene. I'm going to wait till we get there because it, uh, it 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 needs some pouring over. All right. Well, thank you, Vic. That uh, that is a kind of a good overview of this. Uh, so yeah, Jason takes Manhattan, and for my money, the Muppets did a much better job of that. <laughs> <laughs> So when this movie opens, you're immediately like, holy shit, this is cheeseball city. The music is terrible in the opening sequence. The font on the opening titles is terrible. There's an incredibly lame voiceover. Uh, And the World Trade Center is a significant part of the frame. Yeah, that voiceover threw me off a little bit. It told me that uh, our our filmmakers, you know, are, are, are again, we're, we're... we're looking at like an older sensibility, you yeah. know, if, I mean, if we're going to have a movie that's set in New York, then man, we got to have some bebop jazzy, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, freeform Ginsburg ish finger snapping shit going on, man. You know, 
Yeah, well, apparently this one, uh, like many of them, came about because the idea of continuing where the last film left off was considered and rejected. Uh, apparently, um, the director Beekler, John Carl Beekler, and Lar Park Lincoln wanted to continue the adventures of Tina and yeah. was Nixed. No. Uh, yes, yes. And this guy, this director of this film, was shooting episodes of the Friday the 13th series, hmm. and he was uh, hired to write and direct this on basically the benefit of nothing else. Rob Hedden is the guy's name. And um, they had about $4 million. They could only shoot one week in New York, and the rest of it was Vancouver and sound stages. And it shows. It really, really shows. This was definitely the one where they're basically waving the white flag on the series. I mean, New Blood was a financial disappointment. And this one made like a pathetic sum at the box office, like 11, 12, 13 million, something like that. It was, uh, it was a bomb. So uh, let's, uh, let's figure out why. Uh, again, that voiceover, <laughs> <laughs> the voiceover sounds like Adam West uh, doing a lame detective movie pseudo-noir bullshit yeah. kind of spiel. And it's instantly the most dated of any of these films, I think. Um, it just it screams 1989 out of every pore, every frame. This is the first one where I really felt like from the start, if you watched just this opening sequence and you didn't know what movie you were watching, like a Friday the 13th movie would be about guess 350 on your list of options of what this movie might be. It bears no resemblance to any of the other movies. There's no logical connective tissue between this New York musical montage that opens the film and anything we've seen before. <laughs> well, I, I, and again, it's, you, know, the, you can almost hear the filmmakers sit down and go, okay, this is a movie that involves New York, thereby it's going to be about New York in some way. And you know, the New York as seen through the prism of 1989. So, you know, we, we open with uh, this ultra cheesy music and this kooky voiceover and we get these, uh, uh, you know, a montage of like a dead rat in a barrel mm -hmm. full of toxic slime in an alleyway that's inhabited by punks, you know, <laughs> I, just, just, waiting, just waiting for Paul Kersey to come along and gun these guys down. And, uh, you know, they're straight out of central casting, these cats. And, um, but hilariously so. And um, yeah. I will say, gentlemen, I'm going to throw out a statement, but uh, you know, here it comes. Listen, I don't mind this movie all that much. <laughs> really? I, I, I did, you know, um, I, 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 I was kind of laughing to myself because uh, as I was starting to watch it last night, I thought this is probably the worst movie that I've seen willingly three times in a row, three times, you know. It's, <laughs> You know, once the first time again over at John's place a few years ago, and then now in this, you know, and I'm just like I've always I've always known that's like it's kind of a bad movie. But uh, since we've been doing this run of Friday the Thirteenth movies, this podcast, you know, I actually dug the fact that it kind of mixes things up, kind of in the same way that John really likes Part Seven because it it, it adds a new element. You know, they're they're yeah. they're sitting there. It's like as much as I love four. The filmmakers in the studio are looking at it and going, "Why? And we can't just do Jason just running around killing people. We've already done that, you know." And and obviously that that 
brings down the ire of the MPAA. You know, we have to tell a story. We have to do something new. What's the hook in this one? You know, it's a psychic girl. Well, I mean, in this one, um, well, maybe we take Jason to the city. And what better city can there be than New York? And uh, I, I did, you know, just the rhythms in the movie are so different from everything that we've watched before. I actually found myself kind of uh, engaged. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's terrible writing. And the acting is absolutely atrocious. Uh, it's, it's frequently a very boring film to watch. Right. But, uh, I, you know, I think just in juxtaposition with the other movies that we've been watching, I was just kind of like, okay, now they're rowing in the middle of the sea on a boat. <laughs> All right. I'm like, Jason's chasing them down the subway. Right. I mean, we've seen scenes like that in other horror movies, but we haven't seen Jason do this. Sure. I want to double back to something that I said at the very beginning of this podcast, which was, you know, the even when it's bad, these movies are good. You know, like they're entertaining in one way or another. This one finds its way to be entertaining, off, you know, often through just the sheer batshit nuts novelty of what we end up seeing. Uh, so I agree with you, Mike. I, I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I would. And I ended up enjoying uh, the second half of it. I kind of turned off the first half. I was getting tired on Friday and I, you know, watched the rest of it later. And I enjoyed distinctly more the second half than I did the first half. And then the other thing I wanted to say, though, is that I liked watching in the first couple of movies the pre-self-aware Jason, the pre-self-aware franchise. And this movie is where it, it truly becomes, you know, comically meta in, in, in several points. And we'll get to that, but it, it, it's kind of fun uh, in, yeah. in a way. Vic, what are your sort of overall thoughts or impressions about the, the experience you had with the film, both in the past and now? I mean, I, I suppose, and maybe this is true of everything, but I suppose I thought, I, I thought it was going to be better halfway through the movie. And I did the same thing you did, John, which was I was able to watch about half of it and then had to come back to it uh, to finish the other half. And, and just watching that first half, I mean, I, Mike, I mean, you talked about the quality of the writing. There's a laziness to it, I think, is is kind of what what bothered me. That there's just not a lot of there's not a lot of effort put into making things uh, make sense. Uh, I, I actually, I John, I did some poking around, hoping to find that there was rampant drug use on the set of this film, <laughs> <laughs> like Part Five, infamously. Like part five. If, if there's any um, drugs used yeah. on the set of this film, it was definitely some really fucking high quality weed, man. Because I, uh, if there's the one, you know, kind of. When we were doing Seven, the thing that jumped out at me about that movie was its murkiness. Uh, and the thing that jumps out at me about this one is everyone is half fucking asleep in this whole movie, man. It's like I mean, even yeah, even Kane Hodder turns in a Jason performance that isn't quite as vibrant, as interesting as what he did in Seven. You know, uh, like all of the line readings are super sleepy. The char- the actors don't care; they're disconnected. You know, uh, I don't know if it was the way that they were directed or the casting or if they were just fucking smoked up and everyone was 420 <laughs> on the set. And there was like, um, yeah, I just every scene that could have had some juice, just kind of everything falls completely flat. Well, and I think coming off of part seven too, all of the flaws that most of the flaws that are in that movie, I find are forgiven for me. Because that last showdown between uh, Jason and and uh, Carrie yeah. 
Tina. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, is is satisfying. It pays off. It feels like we've been building to this, and here is an actual conclusion. Here is an actual battle with someone that that uh, you know is a, a, a worthy antagonist for Jason. Because let's face it, Jason's the protagonist. Um, and so I think whatever my feelings about the first hour of this movie are, they could all have been forgiven had the New York scenes uh, paid off. Because the the promise of it is. That Jason is this mindless, murderous psychopath, right? Who yeah, has yeah. murdered virtually every human being he's had contact with in the last, you know, 20 years. Yeah, um, yeah. And so to put him in a place where there are human beings everywhere and see how he reacts to it. And they did nothing interesting with that. Yeah. You yeah. know, like it's. The 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 um, again I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when he's confronted by some some punks in the street, they use it as a laugh line. And I thought, you know, the Jason Voorhees that I've been watching for seven movies would have killed all of those kids uh, without batting an eyelash. But instead, he's focused on you know these two characters for no discernible reason. You know, by rights, we should have seen what American World. In London is to uh, what is that Piccadilly Square? Mm-hmm. We should have seen Jason to Times Square. Absolutely. Because, yeah, I mean I, the dude is nothing but a mindless zombie killing machine, and thrown into a, a populated place. Yeah, you know, the movie kind of cheats by telling us, well, he's really focused on these two characters for no other reason besides it doesn't have the money for Jason to just fucking start macheting hundreds of people. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the, the police and the fire department, the National Guard that would have to get called out for that, something like that, you know. So, have you guys ever seen, uh, this is going to sound really random, but it isn't, uh, Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh? Uh, I, I yeah. shut it off halfway through. Right, exactly. This, to me, feels like Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, to Candyman 1. You know, it's like... This is the Z-grade direct-to-video version of of the last movie. Um, because even though the, you know there are elements of New Blood that are kind of dime store, they do very well when it comes, as Vic alluded to, to have the big showdown and the effects and the action. And this movie just never delivers on that. And the budget of that werewolf in Piccadilly Square sequence is probably, of that one sequence, is probably three times this entire film, uh, at least in terms of, you know, what ends up being on the screen. And I agree, Vic, that it, um, it doesn't deliver on the, the promise of the premise. Yeah, yeah I, I, that, that's kind of the thing. It's like, I, I, you know, for Seven, John, I, I think you mentioned that uh, the budget for Seven was something like 2.8. And you, and you can really see that, like, about an hour of it is, like, as cheaply done as possible because they want to blow their whole load right. for the telekinetic thing. And I, I guess, you know, the same thought process is attaching itself to this one to a certain degree because, you know, they really, you know, we spend a lot of fucking time in that boat. And then we're rowing, and then when they finally get to New York, they're dicking around the docks and in these empty alleyways. And, you know, it feels like they're really saving their, their monetary juice for, you know, Times Square, man. You know, that's going to be the, the jewel in the crown. And it's just like uh, they don't do anything nearly as exciting as they did with, you know, Tina. You know, so 
I see exactly where you're coming from. Like, and it's kind of like, where'd that money go then? <laughs> it's like, exactly. <laughs> like it went up their nose. Guys, nose candy. I don't, I don't want to get too far down uh, this rabbit hole, but I just looked this up and confirmed it. Do you know who directed Candyman 2 Farewell to the Flesh? <laughs> no, I don't. Bill Condon. What? His next movie three years later was Gods and Monsters. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, to be perfectly fair or frank and maybe both of those things, I think I, I'm referring to the third one more even than the second one. Uh, two was just terrible, though. Yeah, I know, it, was, it definitely was. But like, even if you've seen the third Candyman, which is set in L.A., it is truly like sub Cinemax, three thirty in the morning, you know, video store, um, bad move, bad rental. You know, it's well, just, it's terrible. You know, I, I, here's kind of an interesting thing though. Uh, as bad as uh, Friday Thirteenth movies have gotten, uh, you know, we've never seen one go direct to video. Yeah, and we can't yeah. say that about almost all of the rest of the horror franchises. I think the only other one that stood out in that regard is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. One could posit that there are probably direct-to-video sequels of other horror franchises that are probably better than five or even eight, but motherfucker, they still got in a theater, man. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. So uh, let's look at the um, couple that we meet at the beginning and Jason's resurrection in a little bit more detail. Uh, it's funny that these two characters uh, that we meet on their own little boat are graduating on the 13th. I kind of like that. That's a nice yes. little touch. Um, the girl does not look like a teenager. She looks more like mid-20s. And She's they have some... very good looking, though. Yes. Uh, for for about, five, about five to ten minutes, I was really thinking that I was going to have to recalculate my hottest probably 13th girl with this one. <laughs> and, and, but uh, but but then someone even better came along, and we'll get into that later. But uh, yeah, she's a very attractive girl. Wow, Mike, I totally know who you're talking about, and we will definitely <laughs> get to JJ. <laughs> so <laughs> we have some real peaches of dialogue here. She's like, "What's wrong?" And then her boyfriend says, "It's just that we're right by that old summer camp where all those murders took place." Because high school guys say things like where those murders took place. Uh, that's a great indication of our quality of dialogue. And then what is a kind of an interesting wrinkle is that instead of a previously on Friday the 13th montage, we get a new reenactment of Jason's drowning and the kid has got hair. He looks totally normal. Discuss. I did notice that the kid gets more mongoloidish. As yeah. the movie goes on and the closer we are to Crystal Lake, because when she gets hassled in both her dream sequences and also in the actual sequence where the spirit of Jason Voorhees as a child tries, tries to drown her, like, you know, especially at the very end, like those are scenes in which they put some makeup into them, da, 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 da. But, you know, in that scene, particularly the flashback um, and then like the earlier dream sequences, he looks relatively normal if not slightly worse you know and that's it so I, I you know i due to the fact that like i was able to pick up on a difference of how the kid looked from one scene to the next i wondered if the filmmakers were actually making an artistic choice yeah i don't know either of you fathom what that was intended to imply 
I'm, I'm going to go back to my initial assessment of this film and say incomprehensible. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Mike, I noticed exactly what you did, and he did seem to be getting progressively more um, mongoloid. I'm increasingly uncomfortable using that word as much as we do on this podcast. Are you hesitant to offend all the mongoloid Americans out there <laughs> listening in podcast land? <laughs> You know, you would think that the mongoloid guys would be attracted to the Jason Voorhees franchise. I mean, they probably would be considering him an idol and listening to this show religiously. We're going to get some very angry emails from the mongoloid American Defense League. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying I have I have listened to a hardcore history podcast about the history of the Mongols and I don't think they send, I don't think they send angry emails, dude. <laughs> they burn down your village is what yeah. happens yeah, so, somehow, uh, yeah, I, no I, I agree i agree that it it's either a it's probably a financial choice that they told themselves was was an artistic one but they never they just never explain it and why it's like they don't even have the maybe they didn't have the rights to show the just the scene from the first film like I don't understand. Well, it felt like they were taking it somewhere in a new direction because they're tying in this mythology of the little boy almost drowns her when she falls into the lake when she was a little girl. But there's a kernel of the victim that Jason was, you know, as an innocent when he was thrown in the lake or neglected or however he ended up drowning in the first place. So they are getting at something, but I agree that it's mostly incomprehensible and it doesn't hold together but it did make me think and this is you know somewhat potentially tangential but what if he was normal and then he became brain damaged and fucked up by this near drowning and pamela was like actually when she's talking about you know what did you do to him or you know when she's ranting about that it was more that because her son came back all fucked up uh, and was, they were both like living in that shack out in the woods. And so that kind of keeps alive that possibility that Jason was alive. And, you know, he, he was basically too young to participate in her killing spree, but he was watching the whole time in the first. Right. Yeah, that, and that he didn't come out of the womb a damaged individual. That he uh, w- was brain damaged by his near drowning yeah. experience, and uh, and then grew up in the woods with this psychotic mom who was working in the cafeteria of the local thing. Oh, she wasn't yeah. even working there then. I mean, I think that right. she had probably been unemployed since the incident. Oh uh, yeah, they're out there eating squirrels and pulling their hair out, and yeah, I, 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 it really comes down to a question of nature versus nurture, I suppose. Indeed. And speaking of nature, this is the only film with no bear references other than, I guess, New Blood. But Well, no... I got, you know, from, from six on, I mean, they, they really yeah. jacked it up to ten and six. And then they're just like, I, I, I think at some point in time, someone finally realized, <laughs> you know, this might sound weird, but we keep talking about bears in these movies. And then from seven on, they're just like, no, no, no bear. They're just like a... Big sign over craft service, no no bear talk on set. <laughs> and no girls thrown out windows either. Yeah. Well, they missed, I'll tell you, they missed the boat because there is ah. scene when they're on the, that's good, thank you. Uh, when the, the Sean, the captain's son, I think, is on the, is on the radio and Jason 
very astutely now having never, so far as I can tell, been on a boat prior to the uh, uh, the kids he kills. The beginning knows which cables to rip out right. to kill the radio right before he can get a hold of the Coast Guard. You know, somebody could have been like, maybe it was a bear. You know? <laughs> they did miss the boat. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did notice they introduce a uh, a harbinger character with the crazy deckhand instead of the kooky old guy who's you know it's a death curse. Instead of that dude, we basically have like kind of the dollar store version of that guy, and he doesn't work at all. That poor guy. No. 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 I, because he comes right out of nowhere, and it's like you're all doomed, and it was just like. No, we're just on a boat. Where'd you get that idea? Because, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. like, the Death Curse guy actually had a point. He's like, you know, some bad shit is going on here. People have died. It's a cursed place. You know, it has a bad history, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, how Whereas, this guy has any freaking inkling that Jason is back and, right. like, on the boat with them, it's beyond ludicrous. Yeah, in which you have a movie in which uh, we're going to include an element that we want to see without selling it at all. That, my friends, that is bad screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say. I believe he's the one who introduces the notion that Jason came uh, down the river, I think, is is the the phrase. (laughs) That's true. And then he's going to take his final revenge on all of you. And I'm just going, wait, how did he? How did they get out of Crystal Lake? Like, it, like a, it's a lake. A lake is by necessity not a river. Um, I don't know. Apparently, there is some tributary that flows from Crystal Lake all the way to uh, New York Harbor. So, yeah. uh, so I want to talk about the resurrection itself. We have Jason pinned under some pieces of the dock, and he's conveniently lying on a power cable at the bottom of the lake. Uh, what happens is the anchor drags along the bottom of the of the lake and severs this cable, and somehow electricity shoots into Jason, and he laughs. He laughs. You hear Jason go, ha, 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 ha. Really? This bullshit evil villain chortle. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was perhaps distracted by the fact that yeah, that power cable struck me as the exact same type of power cable that killed the shark in Jaws 2. I had the same thought. <laughs> We're back to this is our second Jaws reference in two movies. So sure, If we can't have bears, we might as well have sharks, guys. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the sharks are definitely the bears of the underwater animal kingdom. <laughs> it's like they're the bears of the underwater <laughs> animal kingdom. All right, one of my other favorite things when Jason climbs up onto the boat and you see his hands grab the railing of the boat, you can very clearly see two normal human fingertips poking through the gloves or whatever are gripping the railing. Pink, healthy human skin, plain as day. It's like he's just wearing old gloves with holes in them. Oh, that's a far cry from the monster hands we saw in 4. But uh, the thing that I noticed about Jason as a whole in this movie was his sliminess. I I, I think that our filmmakers had kind of toxic waste and water kind of on the brain uh, because he's very much a drippy, slimy, zombie-ish kind of dude. Like, there's a lot of squelching in this movie. And um, <laughs> and uh, I, I also noticed that when, I not to jump too far ahead, but when Kelly Who 
discovers the evil blonde girl dead uh, via the hole punch through the door, there's still like kind of a goopy uh, saliva coming off that hole uh, as if the alien queen had shot her mouth through it. Yeah, there's a very slimy, goopy, wet Jason in every way. Was it like a glory hole? Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it, it is interesting that, and, and, you know, I, and I would almost call seven and eight the aquatic Jasons because in seven we had a lot of underwater footage. Uh, people are getting drowned left and right, and obviously this one is on a boat, and then they're across a, you know, across the New York Harbor, and da 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 da, and then they spend time on the docks. You know, it's, it's, you know, these two movies are both very uh, water-oriented, but ironically enough, this one has very little to do with Crystal Lake itself. Yeah, we get out of Crystal Lake pretty quickly. On that boat, on Crystal Lake, the guy has a perfect replica of Jason's original hockey mask, just ready to go. And a spear gun. As a prank. Yeah. I, I, I think he's related to Shelly somehow. <laughs> <laughs> They tweak the music a little bit, so in this one, it's it's not quite. He's actually saying. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but I did notice that. I, you know, uh, uh, five and six started to introduce Symphony Fantastique, in this one, uh, no, six and seven, sorry. Right. Uh, and in this one, they drop that shit all together, and uh, the they they tweak the music just to tell you exactly who you were watching on the screen. Right. And you're talking about his uh, look and everything, and for the most part, they didn't spend any money on making him look dead. I mean, he's just wearing muddy, slimy, glistening clothes. There's no real character design here, a la New Blood, where he was really well designed. Uh, I agree. I, 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 he really looks like a creep show character, if that made sense. And yeah. in seven, and in this one, yeah, it, it's basically. Jason from part five with a bucket of water dumped over him. <laughs> yeah. And he's lost his sense of aim that he had gained with, uh, you know, ranged weapons uh, previously because he misses her with the spear gun uh, inexplicably. And then she goes and she hides and she doesn't even look scared in the first take that they show of her, which was weird. And then he does find her. And what was kind of interesting here is he kind of gives her a chance to beg for her life. He pauses, and I do find that disturbing. Um, and it was also disturbing that he kills her with these really small blades on this like thin little stick, like three little metal prongs. And I almost find it more horrible to think about killing someone with something like, you know, a butter knife, if that makes any sense, because like you really have to get at him. But then he just stabs her in the, in the heart, and it's easy peasy, and she's you know, just lights out. So it ends up being lame anyway. If only she'd had an American Express card she could have offered him. (laughs) (laughs) Although, funny that you bring that up, Vic. If if there's one other callback, this is the other movie in which we see a long shot of a wallet floating in water. Because uh, in Mm -hmm. six... You know, uh, her her wallet and her express card, her American Express card, end up in a puddle. And this one, uh, so someone gets uh, mugged, and the muggers throw the wallet into uh, into uh, one of the barrels full of like toxic goo, and it just kind of floats there. And we look at that for like four or five seconds. I did like the mugging. Like we, yeah. we have a random mugging in a Friday the Thirteenth film. Because we're in New York. 
So the next boat is the cruise ship that these kids are on, and it's called Lazarus, which I have to admit is kind of clever. Uh, then we introduce two more characters. The main girl named Rennie, which I have to admit is not Tina or Terry or um, one of the seven Friday the 13th names that characters are allowed to have. So that was kind of cool. And she did go on to direct Devil's Pass. So, you know. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Rennie. Oh, I took me a second. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, she's wearing this bizarre vest. Uh, it looked like something that a Hindu or a Buddhist monk would be wearing. Or maybe gypsy, John. Yeah, a gypsy, I... a potentially a rug salesman in the Middle East. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if, if she were to take, tell someone's fortune or to sell a Persian rug, that would be exactly the vest that you would wear for that adventure. And you would also wear high-waisted mom jeans, uh, apparently, because that's what she's wearing. Um, they... Do not make her look good in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I, I think that this, I've argued before, that decades aren't really indicative of pop culture, you know, like 1980 to 1990. I have kind of found that the biggest swing takes place between the fifth year of a decade and then the last year of a decade. It's more like five-year increments. And this little pocket of history that this movie takes place in, the late 80s, early 90s, is probably the worst stylistically of all time. I mean, I really think that the fashion aesthetics, the look and feel of everything of movies, especially in this period, they lack the charm of the early to mid eighties and the mid to late nineties. It's just atrocious. And this film overall is a case in point. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that there's at least one male character who rolls up the cuffs of his jeans. But at least I don't, I don't recall seeing any acid wash. Speaking of the uh, the fashion Easter style, um, I did notice that they dressed Kelly who almost exactly like April O'Neil from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with a big, <laughs> a big yellow jumper. But we'll get to her a little bit later. Uh, one more part from this uh, scene that I wanted to mention. We get the line when her teacher gives her a pen that Stephen King used this pen in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Stephen, he was so poor up in in Maine that he couldn't even afford a typewriter. (laughs) He's using this bizarre, fancy pen, uh, quill tip pen. It's this giant ornate thing. It's like, 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 uh, you look at the pen and you go, okay, Edgar Allan Poe? Sure. Stephen King? <laughs> but of course they're going, well, you know, it's a bunch of 15-year-old boys in here. They're not going to get away with ground pose. Whatever. So. <laughs> and we introduce our new version of Dr. Cruz, which is, of course, <laughs> uh, the guardian of Rennie and the uh, chaperone that Vic mentioned earlier. Charles McCullough is this guy's name, ably portrayed by Peter Mark Richmond as... Um, a uptight douchebag. Now, have, have you guys done any research on him? Because he seems mm-hmm. really familiar. He seems exactly like the kind of guy who would play a principal in a, an English boarding school from a movie from the late 80s. Yeah, his IMDb list is a mile long. Um, he was, I noticed, like, at least one Naked Gun movie in there. And, you know, tons of TV. I'm sure we've seen him. He looked familiar to me as well, but uh, couldn't put my finger on it. Just like Dr. Cruz from Seven, I was like, God, I've seen this guy and shit. 
Who is yep. this guy? You know. Yep. So we also have an admiral. Really, uh, for some reason, we have an admiral in this wearing movie. all of his medals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. With a harpoon on the wall and a sextant that he used as a kid. Yes. <laughs> and his eyeliner wearing son. And the Admiral's son is not committed to becoming the captain. He doesn't remember what he's supposed to do, the proper procedures for getting their cruise underway. And I do love that Dad is so tragically disappointed. I mean, you, he just the, the expression on his face and his eyes, it breaks his heart when his son flubs the, you know, the protocols and storms off the bridge. Yeah, uh, two, two things jumped out at me about that scene. Uh, a, uh, it was reminiscent of Five and kind of the weird jangles that characters take into like sudden inexplicable anger out of nowhere mm-hmm. uh, over like really, really easy shit. You know, uh, I, I, not quite, you know, you're setting too many plates at the table, but still mm-hmm. like, Dude, come on, man. Yeah, he loses his fucking mind over this. And uh, I will say that the kid who plays the kind of male love interest in this movie is one of the sleepiest dudes I've seen in one of these movies. I, I, he is yeah, – I, 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 I'm trying to be nice in saying that I'm guessing that he's just 420 all the way through this production. Is his name Jim Miller? Is that the character name? Does that make sense, Vic? Do you think that jibes with your your notes? I was going to say, I thought his name was Sean, and I'm, I'm looking mm. at it here. Sean Robertson. Oh, okay, you're right. Sean Robertson, you're right, because Admiral Robertson is the, yes. the dad. Portrayed by Scott Reeves. I think this is maybe one of the worst. This is easily the worst subplot in this movie, uh, <laughs> and maybe one of the worst subplots in a a Friday the 13th movie because they treat it so seriously. Yes. And you have this, you have this scene later on when, when <laughs> dad is talking to his first mate and he's like, you, yeah. you, do you have any kids? You know, like, <laughs> don't be too hard on him. <laughs> <laughs> that struck me as well, Vic. I, I love how earnest they are. And even the read that the, um, he doesn't even have a line, but the, the first mate's expression after, the Admiral Robertson says, don't write him too hard. And yeah. he just has this knowing, sad look, the first mate. And then they instantly get butchered. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, and speaking of that, though, if there is one motif that I picked up on in this movie, especially in uh, Act 1, is uh, we have a lot of older characters giving other characters gifts. Uh, yes. We have the, the female teacher gives uh, Rennie the Stephen King pen. <laughs> then Sean gives Rennie another gift, which is that's right. One of the most bizarre ass fucking things on the face of this planet: a, a golden Statue of Liberty necklace <laughs> yes. uh, that actually figures later into the movie. Uh, when the admiral is trying to get his son, uh, his boring ass four twenty fucking son, to launch the ship, he gives him uh, a sextant. Yeah, that he used as a kid, but also the computerized version thereof, and then he complains about it. He's like, ah, oh, you know, computers these days, blah, blah, blah. you know, because it's you know the neo future of 1989. But well, I I did have a note here coming up, uh, Mike. She collects her second present of the movie, so I'm I, I'm definitely keeping tally of this along with you in my yeah, notes. Yeah, 
and you know, it would be, it would be interesting. It's, it's almost like at the beginning of Clash of the Titans, it's like Perseus gets the sword and the shield that makes him invisible, and you know, just right. the helmet and just like everything else. And it's, I, I, it's like, you know, in a stronger movie, she would be getting like items that would pay off in some real way. But I, uh, you know, she stabs Jason with the pen, and that's it, and blah blah blah. So, yeah. I, can you guys? I just, I'm curious what your take is on this setup is this a school sponsored trip like yes. why why are these 12 kids or however many there are like why is, are is, are they the entire graduating class is that what's going on yeah Vic, here here's the situation they are uh the senior high school graduating class of the camp crystal lake high school um it's and lakeview high that's right yeah i was a, a part of a thing that they do. Uh, I believe it's the first time that they've ever done this, which is why it's kind of, you know, everyone's on edge and it's breaking ground. Uh, they've rented out this boat to go up to New York or down so uh, and uh, celebrate, but it's chaperoned. That's why there are parental, you know, there, there are school officials have come along on board, but basically it's, it's, it's basically a prom on the water, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is why later on Uncle Charles can threaten, you know, blonde what's her face with uh, not getting her diploma. They're not right. quite graduated. Then we meet another couple of characters. One is this uh, dorky filmmaker kid who has a black and white video camera, which I don't remember ever existing. Um, or maybe it's just the viewfinder is black and white. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> In any event, Wayne. his name is Wayne John. Wayne, yes. Yep. So Wayne has a female friend named JJ, oh. and she is hot. She is wearing the classic leather jacket, which is timeless, as we all know. And she can really thrash too. Like her, she's pretty good on the old axe. Oh yeah, I, 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 I for obvious reasons, really taken by JJ. Uh, she, she's basically decided that she wants to be a Ramon when she grows up. So she's got the hair. The bangs over her eyes, uh, the you know, but uh, and it's sad to me. One of the only things I really just ugh, about this movie was the fact that that character I mean, she's one of the first to die. Yes, I and mean, she she's in fact the first character to die on this particular water vessel. Do you want to hear my note on that, Mike? As we go, I might start reading some of my notes verbatim because I think it's just better that way. I write, these idiots are so clueless they kill her off first. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because she's got – yeah, I I, mean that's exactly it because there's actually like the formation of like a mini love triangle there because Mm -hmm. once again we have this kind of running – vibe in a Friday the 13th movie in which the females are actually vying for male attention. You know, yeah. I, JJ is, she's really fucking cute. She plays a mean guitar. Uh, she's got a sweet pinkish purple flying V. Uh, yeah. She can rock it. She wants them to direct videos with her, which eh, doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. Uh, like, she wants to hang out and do creative stuff. And this dude is, uh, he's totally thinking of with the small head you know they have this interchange the um wayne who's wearing the worst shirt of all time um she's telling him jj is telling him don't be a dweeb this chick is using you and he admits that he just thinks that i think her name is tamara is hot and 
it's not obvious why JJ would like him, but not the other way around. They kind of reference that they've known each other a long time. So you kind of get the feeling that they're childhood friends and, you know, maybe just because of that, he never thought of her that way or something. Um, but it's an interesting, it's an unusual relationship for those two characters. Um, the fact that he is dweeby and that he's being manipulated by this other hot chick and oblivious to the one right in front of him. Uh, I think they could have gotten a lot more mileage out of that. And speaking of doing research, I did read that they, this movie was two hours long and they cut a lot of dialogue and relationship type plot. So could be that was, uh, you know, got a little bit more screen time than what we ended up with. It was still long for a Friday the 13th movie. It's like an hour 40. And also, I mean, if we're going to talk about fashion style, Wayne is the one character who could survive into the 90s. The shirt, the page boy haircut, the goofy right. glasses. Right. That dude could have been rocking out to Susie and the Banshees at Lollapalooza in 1990, and no one would bat an eye. I just want to compliment you both on your, your fashion sense and <laughs> I haven't put a second thought into the into the character's clothes, really. Uh, I've been living in L.A. way too long. Yeah. She's in a Friday the 13th movie, and the first thing she does is take her, uh, her guitar into the bowels of the ship, which looked like the... I mean, I think that's... That was it looked like Freddy's I, boiler room. It looks like Freddy's boiler room. And this was the first of many instances where I found myself going, how big is this ship? You know, it's like it's two or three stories below deck. This makes me, I feel like this makes me a, a neglectful commentator, but I really was focused more on the geometry of the, of the space uh, and less so on the characters. She's now, Wayne, Wayne's work. shirt, Vic. I want to hear what you think of Wayne's shirt. <laughs> I, 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 think I, I think I wore that shirt in 1992. So, <laughs> Well, speaking of the space, um, the kill here where poor JJ meets her and the blocking of that kill and the, the chase and uh, capture is beyond ridiculous. Jason is teleporting his ass off in this movie. Yes. Oh, dude, it, it, it gets fucking crazy, the teleportation <laughs> in this film. Uh, I, 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 not to get away from poor JJ's demise, because I, as much as I instantly like this character, I am just like, I, I, as much as I was like rooting for the dude in the wheelchair to like, you know, uh, work out and eat well and stay away from drugs and get better. And he's going to be back walking again, despite what the doctor's telling him. Like I was, I was like, yeah, JJ. You're going to have an awesome career. Keep playing, man. Move out to L.A. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then what do you know? She gets biffed in the head with her flying bee and that's it. I thought it was like kind of a cool shot to have the guitar swing into lens and have yeah. the, the splash of blood. So then the next two characters we meet are Melissa and that's – I'm sorry. Tamara, who is the poor man's <laughs> version. It's Melissa after taxes from New Blood. Uh, she's the – you know, icy, imperious, uh, sexual manipulator uh, of the film. And our first Asian character uh, of the series, I believe, yes. whose name escapes me right now. But uh, Mike mentioned her. And Kelly Hugh is the actress. Eva oh, yeah. Watanabe. When I was watching the credits, you know, the opening credits roll by, I'm like, holy fuck, Kelly Hu is in this? Right. Uh, because she, of course, would go on to play Lady Deathstrike in the X-Men movies. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, I would actually have to say 
I mean, she's not quite Kevin Bacon, but she's definitely in the running as like a runner up for like most famous person to come out of a Friday the 13th movie. And I, I immediately pulled her up on IMDb and this was her first film credit. The runner up <laughs> spot is a, yeah. is a horse race. Yeah. Right. Kevin Bacon is definitely first. Crispin Glover is definitely second. But I mean, mm, if we're right. going to talk about third and runner up, man, I mean, Kelly, who is definitely because I mean, above and beyond that, I mean, she's done a ton of shit, man. Like I pulled up her IMDb just to see where in her career this fell. And I mean, it goes on for four miles. The plot summary is going to get a little muddy from here because uh, <laughs> I found the film kind of a chore to watch for a while. Um, our girl, Rennie, walks around in her jeans that fit her ass like an octogenarian's. And she's got a dog, Toby the dog. And the camera guy, Wayne, is walking around and the red light is always on because I guess he has like a five-hour videotape in there. And we've got some lines that are kind of feeling like new blood wannabes, like nighttime is the right time and top dollar toot, which actually that's not bad. Um, And so they're doing coke and whatnot and the parenting discussion, blah, 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 atrocious deaths. Um, oh yeah, I thought it was funny when the Admiral goes to the bridge and finds his first mate dead, and it's so obviously a dummy. Um, the high key lighting in this film and the harsh shadows are really painful to the eye, at least in the Blu-ray edition. Uh, dinner theater, local TV acting. There's a oh okay, let's get to the Kelly's uh, Kelly's death scene. She runs into the club. There's a club on this uh, boat. And it looks like to me like a Slim Jim's commercial, if you can kind of remember. <laughs> and Jason comes out, and I was half expecting him to dance the way the whole thing is shot. And she's confounded when he appears, and it's like, what door do I run to? Because there's all these doors, and she's making like the kind of grunts and groans that girls in anime make, you know. And uh, Jason is suddenly right there. He teleports in front of her, even though she had a clean line of sight for like 20 feet. And his arms look really fake, and he chokes her out. I did think it was kind of cool when he throws her down on the dance floor like a sack of potatoes. Kind of the same way that you reacted to the girl gang, like kind of poked with a little stick in the hold of the opening scene. Uh, in this one, it was both like kind of a, in terms of like a gorehound way, kind of a boring quote-unquote kill. But on the other hand, it also was like kind of brutal where he just kind of holds her up by her neck and just kind of strangles her. And then, you know, it just kind of punctuates it kind of the same way like when he kills Melissa in Seven, where it's basically at core a boring kill, but we get kind of a nice sting at the end of it where he just kind of throws her. Um, yeah, I agree. I did like yeah, the way that that plays. Jason in this movie, his chest is always heaving. heaving you know, mm-hmm. he, he's always like out of breath, and he and he kind of breathes like Darth Vader. I noticed that they decided to go the Michael Myers route in this film, and yeah. having be constantly going. Yeah, and it's like no, you you realize he's a zombie, right? Zombie. <laughs> I thought that uh, Tamara's kill was fairly effective for yeah. this film that she is is taking i think she's getting ready to take a shower and she looks out the bathroom door and sees jason coming in and so there's this moment she closes the door and she you know uh, we don't get that level of suspense very much uh in here and jason bursts through the door and she bounces off of the mirror 
Um, and she get her kind of with blood coming down the, the front of her face and Jason using the, you know, shard of broken glass to stab her. Um, it was just, there was a, a suspenseful beat in there at least that, uh, that, that helped, uh, and actually understanding where the weapon came from also, you know, helped yeah, her. one yeah, of the point. very few interesting moments uh that actually like registered as like horror movie for me in this entire film was when uh he enters the bathroom and then he punches out the mirror and she screams not only startled from the from the sound of it but she also instantly realizes why he did that Mm -hmm. you know and we have this giant uh undead zombie you know kind of picking through the shards, deciding which one to use to murder this girl. I noticed that Kane Hodder is really not that big, and you could tell that um, Beekler knew how to shoot him to make him look big, and this director really doesn't. So to me, like just looking at Jason in this film, he often is to throw in a football term that uh, Vic will probably recognize, but Mike may not. Um, he's a jag. You know, he's, he's just a guy. He he doesn't really have the physical presence that earlier incarnations of Jason did. I would say this is my least favorite Jason of any of the actual Jasons. I would say the, the Jason that opened five, even though he's a dream sequence, because he's got that giant Goonie mask, but he, he is close. Yeah, I agree with that. Anyway, moving along, um, Wayne has a rifle now, and he's still shooting his camera while he's got the rifle. <laughs> uh, which is proto camera horror found footage type stuff. Yeah, yeah, that, that was interesting to me. That, I, there's kind of like a weird, like early found footage ish element yeah. to this one. Uh, I, I, I think that you know, vi- you know, camera technology is becoming available to the consumer enough that it's starting to find its way into horror movies where we have. It's like you know, cool creative people are just kind of want you know. There's there's characters just kind of wandering around cameras uh i mean it's not but yeah it's like we, we get the camera pov uh and yeah we even we even get a a kill of sorts through the lens which is when wayne shoots someone who is obviously not jason even through the lens but um he shoots the hot crew member that one of the girls was you know uh uh you know, salivating over earlier in the film and it's depicted found footage style. And then the camera, the lens pans up from Jason's shoes up his legs to uh, his visage. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, that is interesting to me because uh, if, if we're going to get, if we're going to consider these events to be in real life, this is the first time that Jason Voorhees has been caught on camera in the wild. Well, wait, there was that hilarious uh, in part five where there's the news clipping where some intrepid uh, newspaper cameraman right. apparently got a close-up of Jason. <laughs> yeah, it's some, sometime before part five, he had his headshots done. This is the first time that we've got quote-unquote, video of, yeah. of, of this character. Like, someone is, you know, like Sasquatch. It's like, I, I, and I actually, throughout that sequence, I found myself, like, kind of tracking that tape where it went. Because oh, I was cool. thinking, yeah, you know, because I was thinking of, you know, someone is going to find that tape and watch it and go, 
holy shit, the stories are real. This guy exists. That would be an interesting little spinoff. So Wayne gets thrown onto an electrical panel, uh, which instantly fries him as if it were a electric chair. It made me think of the hippie guy in uh, part three. Where yeah. It's like if you just touch something that goes off like an electric chair. Yeah, exactly. And this is also really obviously a dummy uh, burning, and it's a bad effect. So Jason um, cuts off the communications. He sets off the fire alarm because he's never been on a boat before, but he's got really great instincts for this shit. So uh, then we have the Stephen King's pen comes to final fruition, set up and pay off. But fortunately, Rennie stabs the pen into Jason's bad eye because uh, remember, he's only had one eye for like the last three or four movies. Um, and that's good because otherwise we'd have blind Jason from here on out, which would have really changed the series, I think. Well, I, I, given that he's a supernatural creature now, I, I, I think that you uh, would probably be able to see anyways. No one gets thrown through a window in this movie, but we do have Jason crash through that uh, that portal. Yes, yes. That is yeah. another trope. You're right. That might be the most consistent. Jason needs to crash through a door or a wall in every single movie. He doesn't put his hand through the portal. He headbutts it. Yeah. He heads but yeah. he headbutts the portal to smash it open, and then he reaches through because he's worried about you know shards of glass and you know glass safety. And then later on, he actually smashes through the wall of that diner in New York. One thing that always looks cool is Jason crashing through shit. It's true. So then we get another appearance by uh, baby Jason, the kid, ghost, whatever, uh, appears covered in the same green slime that they used in You Can't Do That on Television back in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> and he says, help me, help me, help me wipe this really bad makeup off my face. It's making me want to sneeze. It's an episode of a bad television show. Uh, at that point. So Crazy Ralph Part 2 gets an axe in the back off of off camera, apparently, and it's it's lame. We have a storm, though. Uh, the elements, of course, have to serve Jason's bidding. And this is like Mike alluded to, scenarios we haven't seen before. We're now fleeing Jason on a large ship, and the characters are jumping into a small boat to escape him in a storm. And uh, it, it, it definitely is a different vibe, uh, even though it's a water tank on the lot. Hey, everyone. Uh, it's John. I decided to cut off this podcast there. We had to break the epic Jason Takes Manhattan into two installments. Hope you enjoy. <laughs> <laughs>